um, we wanted to say something with the stuff we were doing whilst being funny and using comedy to say something. Funny one, but we finished uni with a lot of people being like, this show is brilliant. And you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like, we're going to be famous. <laughs> you know, oh my. How much can the audience continue to laugh as the bodies literally keep piling up? Yeah. Um, I know that particularly my body, some days I have absolutely fine days and I am completely fine. And other days I have days where I know I'm going to have to say, I can't do a lot of physical stuff today. Uh, it was always do, 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 do not talk. Like, do not talk. If you find that you're talking for too long, and we can be guilty of it as well. Incredibly guilty. You remind, <laughs> you remind yourself that actually go away, do something else, come back later. How would a man eat a carrot? <laughs> and how is that different to how a woman eats a carrot? Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Make It Work podcast. I'm your host, Cluani Saunders. I'm an actor, writer, and theater maker based in London. So often performers are encouraged to make their own work, but many people just don't know how to start. In this podcast, we want to talk to people who are out there making their own work. You can learn more about them, their process, their challenges, and their wins, and perhaps it will give you some of the tools to help you get out there and do it yourself. Join us, learn with us, and let's make it work. My guests today are two-thirds of Silent Faces Theatre Company, Josie Underwood and Cordelia Stevenson. Silent Faces are a London and Liverpool-based female and non-binary-led theatre company with collaboration at their core they employ their unique combination of serious and silly to make physical, political theatre that tackles big issues. As an integrated company of neurodivergent, disabled, and non-disabled artists, Silent Faces are passionate about diversity, equity, accessibility, and representation. So welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I really so appreciate it. So usually what I do is I start by talking about where people have come from, the training that they've received. I know you guys met at Goldsmiths University. Yeah, we where, did. Where you did your training. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was uh, 2012 that we started our degree. Um, and essentially Goldsmiths is an arts university. It's very much known as an arts university very famous for its like fine art course essentially um, but also for humanities and theatre and music as well um, and I certainly myself was drawn to it um, as a kind of alternative to drama school I knew that I wanted to not only be a performer although I loved that but I kind of was like hmm 18 years old do I want to be a performer do I want to be a director um, uh, do I want to make my own work and Goldsmiths essentially that course seems to be the one that that would allow me to kind of explore all of those things. Um, and we began working together in our second year. We worked together in our first year, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, end of our first year, we, we did a module together and that was the first time we sort of met and clicked. And then second year, we did a little bit more stuff together. And then third year, we spent more time with Jack, who is the third member of um, Silent Faces, um, doing a clown module. Yes. So that was where we kind of, the three of us um, yeah. came together. And I think in terms of kind of, I'll let you speak in a moment as well, Jace, but kind of for me, it was that module which was called Audience, 
about that kind of work where you kind of bring the audience into it and a lot of that which was clowning that made me go oh my gosh this is it and it was sort of the thing that I'd always known that I liked comedy and physical comedy but like that was the kind of spark moment that I was like oh I really really like this mm. and working with Josie and Jack we just there was like an instant like okay we're three people who find each other funny and as a combination of three quite different people who are all funny in their own way like that really really worked yeah um, and that was such a delight um and then from there we were like right we've got to find a way of making sure that in our third year we can we can be together again <laughs> yeah. and then we and then we did a module in our third year which was a devising module so we had I think we had something ridiculous like three months to make a show um, and we were put in a group of us three and a couple of other people um, and we made our first show during that and there was this yeah this bind of the kind of the audience module and the comedy and clowning and silliness but then also we wanted to um, we wanted to say something with the stuff we were doing whilst being funny and using comedy to say something um, which was another thing that kind of tied us all together in that mm. we didn't want to just make a slapstick comedy mm. um, purely comedic kind of work. We wanted to do something that gets a little bit gritty mm. and political and um, and that's where our first show, Follow Suit, came from. So yeah. yeah, so you came out of university with that show made, ready to go. It was half an hour. It was supposed to be half an hour. That's the cutoff that we had for our, our, our final piece of work for our degree. Probably was about 35 minutes. Yeah, it was edging We were naughty. But, um, <laughs> and then we extended it. We added an extra section, which made it probably a 50-minute show, maybe a little bit shorter, uh, because uh, in Fringe, you kind of need an hour, 50 minutes, like, minimum. Yeah. Probably was just under. I'd say um but yes it it stayed in a it mainly stayed how it was uh when we finished uni but there were changes as well um so it we developed it we redeveloped it um whilst trying to navigate the world after you finish your degree like what the heck am i doing uh so kind of redeveloped it in our free time um, and yeah, then... this was before we realised that um, the Arts Council is there to pay for artists to do art. Mm. So we just were like, okay, well, we'll do our jobs. And then on our evenings off, we'll all get in a room and and continue making, um, which is how we kind of continue. Luckily, we had this three months of work that already was the basis of a show the majority of the show and then we just kept editing and adding and playing and um and then it turned into this fuller length piece which we then took to brighton fringe yeah for i think it was like five dates yeah it was like 2016 yeah about that yeah um in the summer um and that was our first kind of foray into actually being out of the bubble of university because the bubble of university was a weird one as well because I don't know it's a funny one but we finished uni with a lot of people being like this show is brilliant and you're like oh my gosh oh my gosh this is incredible like we're gonna be famous (laughs) oh my this is this is the best thing that's ever happened and then you know the minute you leave you go oh all those people that you know that's really nice they're very supportive but actually oh 
maybe maybe that's not true. <laughs> maybe it's only okay. Um, but no, it was a good show. It was a great it was a really Yeah, you got show. some really good reviews yeah, for that yeah, show. Yeah, I that show. Yeah. Tell us about that show because we've sort of just named it, but we haven't actually said what it's like as a piece. Yeah, mm. so that show um, is um, the, I was going to say the most silent. All of our work is up until the most recent show mm. has been pretty non-verbal. Um, and that show sort of started um, as a completely non-verbal show. Um, we added like, little drips and drabs of words here and there I think there's like one sentence in the show but generally it's a non-verbal show and it's it's clowning um and it is um play and silliness and it is about a office space hit with uh, major disruption and um so it's these office workers trying to get on with their jobs um and then it then a person comes into their office and brings a body bag and kind of slams it on their uh, office cupboard and they continue to try to distract themselves from it. So it's a chance for us to play in a very clowny way, but also uh, talk about corporate responsibility and um, what do we distract ourselves from and what are we comfortable um, not addressing in the work that we do. Mm. Yeah, like very, very complex um, subject matter to try to um, tackle without words. Mm. And we gave ourselves like a real task, very much from the beginning, wasn't it, Jace? It was that uh, whilst we were at uni, you it was very uh, recently had been the Charlie Hebdo um, yeah, right. incident. Yes. Yeah, when people went into the offices in, in Paris and, and killed a lot of people. Mm. Um, and it was inescapable on the news cycle. Mm. And I kept saying when we, when it, it was right at the beginning, January sort of must've been 2015 when, um, when this was, yeah, all over the news. And this was when we'd started making the show and we were talking, we're going to make a clown show. We're gonna, it's going to be funny. It's going to be silly. And I was like, but we have to, we have to talk about this. Mm. Um, and that's where the, the office and kind of a normal working office hit with absolute chaos. That idea that, yeah. came from. And also this idea that it was a satirical magazine and who can say what. That was a really like, that. who's allowed to satirise what, who can say what, what can you make fun of? Like that was always there kind of like, you know, slowly mm. like melting away. Uh, as we were kind of working um, on it. And then it became, as you've said, uh, this idea of what we were calling at the time distractivism. So feeling like you're um, uh, being an activist and you have something to say by maybe writing something like on the internet. Mm. Uh, but actually what you're doing is not really addressing anything. You're just making yourself kind of feel good. Uh, as if you're making a difference, but you're not really. And this is a whole process. Yeah. It's such a process. Yeah. And then and then it came to being that we had the place, that the structure of the office, which was so helpful for devising the clowning, mm. kind of what would you do in an office if you had all this stuff, but you were a clown and you kind of were doing a clown's version of what people do in a big, big boy's office. Like, what do you do? <laughs> Opening your briefcase and shutting your briefcase. Yes. And... Oh, I'm signing documents. And that's really yeah. important, even though the documents don't say anything. And that mixed, mixed with 
um, then this idea of the chain of command. So in anything we do, there's always someone above you to blame, mm -hmm. and particularly in a kind of corporate situation, like the rungs of the ladder. But actually, even if you're the little man, you know, and you're just the person who dots the I's and crosses the T's, uh, mm. you know, are you culpable for something that's happening further up that you're just ignoring? And essentially, they're ignoring. Uh, <laughs> so it's a totally a visual metaphor for the fact that, you know, and it's and <laughs> for you again, that came down to uh, the stuff with Nestle at the time. Yeah, well, it was the idea that particularly Nestle are a notorious yes, company yeah. for just not getting... Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think maybe not on YouTube, but I can cut okay. this out, yeah. Um, you haven't sworn. Oh, I haven't sworn yet. I, got, I caught myself first. Uh, but they're notorious for not giving a crap um, <laughs> about actual people and, and how their corporate... Um, uh, their corporation affects people's actual lives and in some cases... Um, is it's there's a whole um, horrible story about breast milk that Nestle basically weaned uh, got women to wean themselves off breast milk to buy their breast milk and then once you wean yourself off breast milk you stop producing breast milk mm -hmm. and then they have to pay for the Nestle products um, and I remember my mum telling me that story as a as a kid and it really hitting me and then just they continue and leave, like privatizing water and like horrible things mm. like that um and we played with the idea of you know working for a company like that even if you are not the person making that direct decision um to neglect someone's human rights you you are a cog in that wheel mm. um and at what point oh sorry um at what point do we do we stand up and say no? And do we do that? Um, mm. And is that our, our responsibility? Um, where does that lie? And um, yeah, so it, it came a long way from the, the Charlie Hebdo office attack to this idea of, it kind of almost simplified down to an office of a, uh, an idea of office hit with destruction that then went, okay, what if that destruction was from within that organization mm. um and what if you could simplify the metaphor right down so this is you know this is a whole devising process that again as we've said we were so privileged in that kind of university bubble to have all that time to work through all of this but then mm. to distill it down and go okay and this is why we talk about our work being quite often about it being metaphorical in yeah. that it's it's what's the best way to show rather than tell um, and make the, the the big, the serious, the, the tricky simple. Mm. And that essentially became this visual metaphor. And follow suit is probably the most metaphorical um, and had many interpretations from people who came to see it. That was always a fascinating, fascinating uh, conversation with audiences. But yes, mm. if you could distill it down and to make it the simplest but most serious thing is that People are dying and we don't know where that's coming from. And bodies keep arriving in this office and they are the skeletons in the stationery cupboard. So they get... get, get literally getting, skeletons literally in the closet. Yeah. getting shoved in. Uh, and these 
office people who are really stupid who the audience absolutely love because they're very very silly how much can the audience continue to laugh as the bodies literally keep piling up yeah and that was the kind of it's almost the kind of test of the show and interesting in performance as well how how different audiences would stop laughing earlier or like could you get them with something that's really funny again to laugh again and then be reminded of Mm. and again it goes back to that initial thing of one of the main things we love about this form of clowning is the audience connection. Sure. That if you're looking into an audience's eyes and you're like, um, you know, play with me, play with me, uh, what happens if you then, you know, change the game and they're looking at you and they're like, oh my gosh, you're responsible for this. Like, how does that make you feel? And it's quite like a visceral response from a lot of people. Like, you know, it was a very divisive show. It was a divisive show. And there was also the element of, how much were those clowns the victims of what was going on around them and how much were they um, active perpetrators mm. in, in, the, um, in the horror and the, the violence surrounding them? And yeah, audiences were really split down the middle of, mm. you know, oh, I still loved you at the end or you guys were awful. And yeah. like, what, at what point do they uh, change that? Do, yeah. do you think, so you're saying you basically, you're, well, you're putting clowns in sort of these awful situations, political situations, and you're carrying some really heavy messages mm. with these shows. Do you think the comedy and the lightness of it helps the pill go down a little easier with your audiences? Is that, was that anything that you thought about? Or? I think in a way it helps, it is a bit of a spoonful of sugar, but it also makes the punch a bit harder mm. because when you're laughing and you're relaxed, when the the blow comes, it's more of a drop down to that that level. Um, so it yeah, it's a mixture of the two things. Knowing that laughter really does relax people, it relaxes audiences, and they and they it's much easier to get an audience on side when you are playing with them and and bringing them in in that way that that. Um, clowns do but on the flip side you're making them feel really relaxed and then and then you're kind of what's it's the tickle and slap method that we always talk about um in our work and it is that that we rely on and it is the kind of multifaceted nature of that that can be really effective for Mm -hmm. audiences because a lot of the things we talk about you know in our three shows we talked about corporate responsibility we talked about depression we talked about gender inequality these are massive topics but all of our audiences um you they need to be on side for you to have that as an open conversation Mm. or any of those discussions um and laughter really helps with that Mm. and you're also aware that you know Often in the theatre, one of the things that we really, really want is, well, to be entertained, yes, but a lot of people want to go to laugh, to have a nice time. Um, And to give that and then kind of like sneak your, (laughs) sneak your issue in, is that's, 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 it's very purposeful. I think that's Mm. the, that's the thing. It is very, very purposeful. But also that all of these issues we talk about are, nuanced Mm. and and again it's easier to talk about nuance when you are relaxed and open to hearing all sides of the discussion which the comedy helps with Mm. and so your next show 
was about depression, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and it was called a clown show about rain. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that show. And maybe I can ask this question kind of in conjunction. Where do these ideas come from? You talked a little mm. bit about Hebdo. Mm -hmm. um, but for this next one, where did it come from? This show literally came from a dream that I had. <laughs> I had a dream that we did a show called Clown Show About Rain. And we had, whilst when I had this dream, um, the dream was very different to the actual show. <laughs> Um, but we'd been having conversations about making a show about mental health mm -hmm. whilst we uh, were talking about what our next piece of work was. Um, it was a couple of years after we'd all graduated university and we were finding our way in the world and each of us um, deal with different mental health issues. Um, and it was really present in our lives at that time to be talking about mental health and and I think one of the biggest things about mental health is that you have to talk about it. Mm. And we wanted to encourage people to talk about it. Um, and then I had this dream where it was, we were doing this show called Clown Show About Rain. And I went, that I love that title. So I forced them to say yes um, to that title. And then we took it into a rehearsal room. And um, the metaphor for this one was about uh, weather and how... You can't control the weather, but it is always there. So sometimes you will have a sunny day and the next day it could be raining and you can't do anything about it, but you have to endure both of those things. Mm. And also that everyone has has the weather. Everyone so has the weather is the weather. there, um, you know, at all times and is unpredictable for everyone. Um, and then as we developed um, this idea of, the, obviously, the title, Rain, um, as we developed that, we came again to be making something very non-verbal and it mm. had to be a clown show that was the title also something about uh naming it as a clown show this time mm. felt really really important mm. because um it's way more popular now but i think at the time we were making follow suit there seemed to be a bit of a like is it clown is it not clown what is clown Ooh, ooh, ooh. like that people have very kind of have kind of opinions about clown and it makes them think of certain things so and there's definitely still people that would say that our work is not clown yeah now at this point i think which is why we we describe our work as devised theater because that's what it is really mm -hmm. yeah um and we use elements of clown and elements of this and elements of that yeah but um yeah so to extend that metaphor of the weather there then became this character who yes had the weather like everyone else but also this uh almost like a a gap in a seat in the ceiling even if there was no ceiling that a drip was coming through oh. so Josie's character had this kind of like beautiful like oh like <laughs> drip like landing on her head and it would happen and she can see the water but nobody else can uh, and the drips then start to come more frequently and then they end up not just being above her head but they're all over the place and she's gathering buckets so these kind of uh, they ended up being on a boat Sailor clowns, sort of fishermen, or they don't do any. They don't do any, any fishing. fishing. But they are wearing lovely, very sweaty waders. Incredibly sweaty waders. Um, and she had these buckets, so she would try to like keep everything together. To with catch them. all that the drips. That was oh. the kind of catch all the drips um, until the the closing kind of moments of this almighty storm, where suddenly the two other um, sailor clowns are, are there with her, and they can finally see what's going up, and she finally speaks. 
and lets them and explains what's happening. Um, but again, yeah, such a gentle show after doing such quite a violent show, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just love that show. It's so beautiful. Yeah, and we really want to redevelop it for um, young audiences mm. because it naturally had, um, because it was so nonverbal, mm. um, it really worked. We did. We went into a school and did it for, I think it was like year twos through to like year sixes. So much younger audience than the show had been made yeah. for. And they absolutely loved mm. it. Um, and we hadn't planned for that at all. So, um, and we still still would argue that it's really important to talk to kids about mental health, to talk mm -hmm. to everyone about mental health, but to talk to kids from a young age um, about what they're going through and, and be able to articulate things. So we'd love to redevelop it as a um, as a children's show. Or a more family show as well. Yeah, because family show. Even in Edinburgh when we did that show, so we did, yeah, both follow suit and, and a clown show about rain, we did four months in Edinburgh. Uh, whenever there was an, a child in the audience with the adults, there was something just magical, just a kind yeah. of lift that that child or those children would laugh at things that the adults wouldn't. And then you're kind of seeing it through that child's like innocent sort of eyes. And it was just lovely. Mm. It's a much more visual show. I'd say all of our shows are very visual and particularly because majority nonverbal. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about why you decided? I mean, I know clowns are often nonverbal, mm. um, but why was there a decision or so early on to mm. do nonverbal shows? Don't know. I think I don't really know. <laughs> Do you know what? I think um, we never delved whilst in our training into clowning with words. We mm. never did that. And I personally have done a bit of that since. But I think um, it's something uh, recently, um, I, I think actually during during the pandemic, I did a lot of kind of like online uh, clown workshops and things. And I did uh, a kind of Q&A where... Uh, with a clown teacher called Angela de Castro, who's amazing. Mm. And I said to her about, um, I asked her that question. I was like, you know, does does a clown, are you still a clown if you speak? And I think she said, a clown doesn't have to speak unless they have something to say. Unless mm. they, if they, if they need to speak, they will. But you only speak once that's your only option. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's the reason. I think we're we all work really, really visual. We all love physical comedy. You're a really big kind of movement, like dance person, and mm. that's kind of in your bones. Um and all three of us have ridiculously expressive, stupid faces. <laughs> um and and that's kind of our greatest asset. So I think yeah, it became it, and also it's devising. So writing then therefore felt like a different mm. thing that we weren't necessarily ready to approach when we mm. did the first two shows. I think it, that's really interesting because it is. I don't think it is that we chose not to to make nonverbal work. I think it's that we chose to make the shows that we made, and they didn't need words. Yeah. So that's. That's a really interesting question because yeah. I, I, I genuinely don't think there was a point where we went, oh, no, we don't want to talk. Yeah. It was just that we didn't need to. Yeah. Because there was so much that we were doing that explained itself visually that we didn't need to add words. Um, and certainly with follow suit, the lack of words kind of it almost like releases a different kind of creativity. So the words mm. that are in that show 
are single words that each character says. One character says right, the other says uh, great, the other says so, and the other says okay. So they're just these business people who are like, right, great, so. <laughs> Okay, and like how many different ways can you say something with only those four words? Yeah. Um, and as you say, there's one sentence in it that Jack says, which is very funny. Uh, but um, but yeah, it just it it just feels right, I think. We didn't need to speak, and therefore we didn't. And also, I think with Follow Suit as we went along, we were like, this makes the work so accessible in a different way as well. Yeah. yeah. That it's for anyone. Yeah, our first two shows, we were always really keen to... We were going to do Follow Suit at the Prague Fringe, which was really, really exciting. But then, um, then obviously, lockdown happened mm. and, and the Fringe got delayed and it, it never happened. So we'd still love to do that. But um, <laughs> but it does mean it, that the work is a bit more international as well um, or can be made international. So I think we should move on to um, Godot as a Woman, which was your last offering at the Ed Fringe mm -hmm. last year. And I saw it there. I thought it was wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Um, so tell me a little bit about that project, because it's it's linked to a, a very famous play or it has, you know, some references to a very famous play. Um, tell us where the idea came from for that piece. Uh, yes, the idea from that piece came from uh, us going to each other. Right, what's next? <laughs> how can we? <laughs> how can we grow as mm -hmm. a company? What can What can we do? And I don't remember which one of us it was. I think it had been a kind of like there's a kind of group love of Beckett that's always been there. When we did this audience module when we were at university, not us, but another of the groups did one of Beckett's plays called act without words which is a non-verbal uh play where you literally follow the stage directions um of beckett's text um and you've done a kind of beckett module and all of yeah. us kind of have you know we all know that we have this thing about beckett he kind of aligns with our work in in lots of ways so i don't know who it was do you remember one of us said let's do waiting for Godot." well yeah we were talking about because and we do joke about in in God as a woman we say our past two shows was a was a clown show about corporate response, corporate responsibility and a dance piece about depression and it's this like, two very niche shows um, so let's do something that might get us an audience for once um, <laughs> yeah no shame yeah no, no shame, shame. We, we wanted to um, access wider audiences and we knew that if we did a show that audiences recognize the mm. title of we might be able to access a different audience to the mm. audiences we'd already been performing for and so yeah we talked really seriously about doing waiting for god and we were really excited about doing that and then as we talked about it more and more and we talked about it with other theater makers and friends and family and all sorts of people it kind of came about that lots of people said oh you won't get the rights um and we wouldn't get the right specifically because Beckett stated that he only wanted men to perform Waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. So we continue talking about it, thinking, oh, we'll get around that. They can't still be upholding mm -hmm. that, that ruling now. Um, so we had lots of meetings about the next stages of applying for the rights. And then someone said in a meeting, OK, on our to-do list is apply for the rights to do Waiting for Godot. And then if we don't get the rights to start making waiting for waiting for godot um and then we all kind of looked around and were like oh is that better yeah is that more fun to make um and yeah it just sort of started rolling from there 
Uh, we did start making Waiting for Waiting for Godot, um, and we did a, a silly little R and D in uh, at Wilderness Festival where we performed it, and it was very very early rendition of Godot as a woman. Um, and then we spoke to the head of theatre at the Pleasance, Nick Connerton, who said, um, "You can't do that either because." There is already a play called Waiting for Waiting for Godot. <laughs> so we weren't allowed to do that either. So we then spitballed a bit and came up with Godot as a woman um, and then continued making it mm. from there. Is it a reference to the Ariana Grande song? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes, and that's kind of, again, like the, um, I think even with that, it's so hard to know with these things, like where things come from, like genuinely. And the process of that has been such a kind of, yeah, a kind of muddle of different things. Mm. But I, I think that Godot is a woman as a title, because after, after you've done the R&D, and there were bits of music in the research and development, but not pop music. No. What did we have? We had we, Steptoe and some. We did have Shaka Khan. Did we? That was the, okay. the first thing we made was a dance to Like Sugar by Shaka Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in no way related to Waiting for Godot whatsoever. We so just we, did it in a rehearsal. We did it in a rehearsal. Yeah, we had good. a lot of fun. We found it really funny. Um, and so we went, okay, how do we get this into a show about Waiting for <laughs> yes. Godot? And then Godot is a woman, we, you know, came up with various different titles. I can't remember. Lots of them were probably awful. R- came most up with, of them were, yeah, yeah, Godot is a woman were like, oh, that's kind of a, an Ariana Grande reference. And we were like, okay, we've already got Shaka Khan in there. And then, and then it kind of became, yeah, that there's this that this that pop music was going to be part of this mm. show as much as Beckett is part of this show, and then that where we are kind of now is a really interesting, um, not necessarily something that you think of immediately when you see the show, but is about is about what's high art and what's low art and like what's more what's important like mm. in the show this idea of a classic, the fact that Waiting for Godot is a classic, but also that Madonna's Like a Prayer is a classic. Yeah. And kind of like how, you know, in, it's certainly in British culture, how we kind of um, identify what what's important in mm. terms of culture and art. And, and what has cultural value. Yes. And, um, and it's really interesting um, from a fe- feminist perspective to look at, the cultural value of something like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot in comparison to the cultural value of Madonna's Like a Prayer mm. because those two things have major, major impact mm. on British culture, um, on global culture. Um, but they are very, very different styles of art. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, one of them is high art and the other one is not so much. Yeah, it's popular. Mm. It's you know? just popular and it's fun. And, and and that kind of dismantling of that a bit was really interesting for us mm. as well. Mm. So it's a, so Godot as a Woman is a real clash between um, the world of waiting for Godot in this Beckettian absurdism um, about what it is to exist and what it is to be a human and, and what are we waiting for. Um, and then a celebration of female and trans and non-binary artists who have made brilliant art in the past hundred years or whatever. On your website, 
I'm going to read this. You described yourselves as an integrated company of disabled and non-disabled artists. And I also know you work with Stopgap and Disability mm-hmm. Arts Online as winners of the inaugural Integrated Fringe Award for Brighton Fringe. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more, more about that and um, maybe why inclusivity is, is so important to you as a company? Yeah, absolutely. We are... Um so when we first started working together, it was really important um, to particularly Jack, who has um, fibromyalgia, that we work as a integrated company. And then since that time, I have also had a diagnosis of endometriosis and fibromyalgia. Um, mm. And so we, we work a lot physically, um, but also with these invisible disabilities and how that impacts our work and how we want to empower other people who have physical disabilities to uh, feel like they can still make work mm-hmm. um, and that is not a barrier. Um, and, and largely invisible disabilities as well is yeah. um, hugely part of um, uh, the work we did with Disability Arts Online and uh, Stopgap that was um, for Follow Suit. So that was in, that was in 2016. Um, that was a bursary and also mentoring from those um, two companies um, and assistance essentially in uh, what it is to be to be an integrated company and essentially uh, it's a kind of beautiful way of looking at it that a lot of companies are integrated they don't even realize that they are but actually um, really kind of pinpointing that in your practice mm. I think there's a lot there about with us is that our work is incredibly physical but you know we don't necessarily looking at us have the um, the bodies of a physical theater company or we don't necessarily, um, you wouldn't necessarily know that there are those invisible disabilities going on. And that spreads also into um, mental health issues mm-hmm. as well and how you uh, navigate and you kind of develop your practice into a way that everyone is kind of catered for and supported. Mm. Uh, and that was just really, really important to us and was something that that we were assisted in kind of uh working through um how we developed and that um whilst working with those two organizations yeah and Um, it's it's interesting because um in in that way we have always and we continue to the work is never done we continue to make sure or try to make sure that our process is accessible to everyone Mm. particularly in make it up audiences as well, um, but particularly in making the work, we want to make sure that everyone is a, is in a space to be able to do their best work and be as creative um, and have as much fun in that process as they can. Um, and that is obviously affected um, by your mental or physical state. Mm-hmm. And so just even simple things that, um, that don't happen in every rehearsal room and I think should, like check-ins at the beginning because... Um, I know that particularly my body, some days I have absolutely fine days and I am completely fine. And other days I have days where I know I'm going to have to say, I can't do a lot of physical stuff today. Or um, or even from a mental health perspective, I I'm, I'm, not, I'm in a very fuzzy space and I, and I know I'm not going to be as articulate as I might be in another mm-hmm. rehearsal. Um, or that this day we might need more breaks. So we might go 45 minutes and then have a 10 minute, 15 minute break, then come back together, another 45 minutes. And... And it's amazing how actually those that becomes more productive. In fact, reflecting on how we used to work, 
particularly when we were at university, mm. you'd go for like sessions of like three, four hours, and by the end of it, you're all like, <laughs> um, and and actually, um, it's also that thing of like getting stuck on an idea or something not working. And actually putting in those structures where you work for a certain period of time and you take that that pause uh, to then come back kind of recalibrates mm. your brain. And yeah. certainly, um, you know, for neurodivergence as well. So um, Jack is ADHD. Um, I am undiagnosed, but I'm sure I'm dyspraxic um, or autistic. Um, that's in my family. Um, and that's something that I'm currently... Um, exploring for myself but even without those diagnoses it's something again we've recently implemented is this um, how I work document which essentially is every person who works with us is asked a series of different questions of like how they like to be contacted outside of um, rehearsal do they like to be contacted by phone call do they hate that do they would they rather have whatsapp would they rather just be emailed like what is going to work best for you are there certain things that you can't uh, do you prefer um, to be left alone at lunchtime? You know, and you can answer as fully or as as like minimal as you as you want, and you can add and change those kind of documents. But it's kind of opening the space for everyone mm. to kind of say, "Oh, I know myself, and and these are the things that will help me." Mm. Um, and it's really useful. And it's also something that we, yes, as as you said earlier is like we identify as a integrated couple of disabled and non-disabled artists but it's almost advocating for every company to work in that way anyway mm. because everyone is different there is always going to be a range of um neurodiversity and neurotypical people in the room there's always going to be people that have different limitations on their bodies that have different limitations on their mental health and and all of those things affect the way that you make work. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important for us to keep that in our in our biog. So it just highlights that that we do that, but so should you. Yeah. So should everyone. It's it's I don't I don't think it's something that that we are kind of doing on on our own and, and we should be patted on the back for that. I think everyone should be doing that. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so tell me, in the process, can you tell me a little bit about your devising process? Your a day in a rehearsal room with you guys um, to create something like Gatto as a woman. Mm. So, as Joseph said, there will always be, and we tend to do these days a kind of flexible start. So you have like a soft start at like half nine, mm. hard start at ten o'clock. Mm. Uh, come together, have a check in. That probably lasts about. 15 minutes maybe um and then we will we will warm up and play games usually clowning games probably for about like 45 minutes yeah uh and even then um again it's kind of depending on where you are in the process mm. but like a very kind of like off the bat starting from nowhere that kind of play um is something that will continue for basically the whole session yeah. with things that kind of arrive out of the play um that that then you kind of may choreograph into into more of a a thing or you mm. may kind of uh have someone who's acting in a directorial way either one of us because we often direct each other or an external director um for Godot. we had the wonderful laura colleen um kind of picking up something and being like right 
can we frame this physical um, play that you've just done with the theme of of this? So it, mm. it starts, there's always space for that um, kind of freedom, certainly for the first little kind of chunk, uh, certainly kind of two, two or three days at the beginning of the process, I would say. And often games, not necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about playing like really structured games like Zip That Boing or, you know, anything like that. You're more... We play, it'll be kind of ball games. So um, one of our favorites, which is one actually from university, is called Follow Reverse Free, where you're essentially throwing a ball to another person in the circle. You're following that ball. Um, and you continue to do that as you say follow. And then um, you add in further rules whereby you reverse your action and you then free your action so that you can go anywhere in the room. Uh, look it up it's a great game yeah but also that you can that there's freedom within that to then remove the ball from it so it ends up just becoming paths of movement so which then becomes really clowny and then brings up kind of like status and relationships, relationships. Like the amazing like scenes and and um and yeah relationships between the different people playing the game that just emerge when you're just playing a ball game mm-hmm. is amazing and we do a lot of that for a lot of time in our mm. devising process particularly as you say in the in the earlier stages of that process we just play a lot mm-hmm. um and, and do you record the things you find how do you you know sort of keep the things that you want and let go of the things that maybe aren't going to make it further in the process yeah more so kind of uh with the the Godot process there was more often kind of a camera in the room to film certain sections but we haven't actually got to a point and it may be something that we do in the future where we kind of film huge swathes because that in itself is such a tricky Mm. thing to kind of go back through and find things and I think also with the playing and it's particularly this when you've got a new when it's we have to kind of refine our ensemble you and I and Jack when we're in a room together but even more so if you bring someone else in mm-hmm. so we've had kind of two um uh, secondary cast members who filled in in Edinburgh amazing uh Roz Watt and Cara Withers um and it's actually those games are not necessarily always even in the devising process a part of building up the ensemble itself so that we have this kind of shared language mm. and actually like there is a shared language in our room in our rehearsal room in our making room for how we make things and even having that kind of like basis of like physical status and clown and persona and how you if you bring a new person into the room you see how the relationships of those people in that room and their clown personas may come to become something more solid because you see you start to you start to see how we relate to each other and who is the higher status and who's the lower status mm. and, and and interestingly it changes as well so for the first two shows you've been very low status uh, whereas <laughs> yeah. in Godot whereas in Godot it's like Joseph's clown persona has gone like no I'm in charge you you just be silly and I'll be in charge yeah it's funny isn't it there's the there's but then there is, that is echoed in the other shows as well in that I'm I play the low status clown I think I still play the low status clown in God is a woman as well mm. but a low status t- clown that actually has 
authority to make decisions, which mm. is a really interesting dynamic and is kind of similar to actually how we work as a producing company as well, mm. is that um, that it's really reflective of how we are as people. Mm. Um, Tell me more about that, because I was going to ask, you know, there's three of you. Yeah. How do decisions get made? You know, mm. I mean, is there a... The buck, the buck stops with this person, or is it, like, collective? We have this almost unspoken, but very much spoken, agreement that we we work in a way that we play and we play and we play, and then and then we either stay together or go away to, to reflect on what we've done. Um, and often, often we come to decisions naturally together, but we often find ourselves in in situations where someone has a really strong opinion about something, um, and it's almost like we kind of just go, we deal with those issues head on, and we just work through it as a three, really. Mm. Um, with this, with God as a woman, we did work with a director, which was a really interesting additional person to bring into the room, um, and. Like gave us a lot of clarity in some places, um, which was really useful. But I think it often comes back to what are we trying to say with this piece? What are we? What do we mean when we're making this moment? What do we mean when when we're articulating this or doing that? Um, and then try and, and and once we've kind of agreed on that and that's solid, it's then really easy to go and play and do all sorts of things. Um, and then if someone thinks that we're going too far away from what that decision was mm. then it gets roped back like pulled mm. back in and, and we assess that as a three we don't really have a buck stops with one particular person no and there's no denying it's tricky mm. i yeah, think that's hard. really important to say and um and it's something that we still find difficult but i don't think actually where we are at the moment that that we could confidently um implement that for example that you know and actually it may be something um it, in terms of the work that we want to go on to make now, we're very much thinking that uh, another show that we make soon, uh, we won't all three necessarily be in it, um, mm. which will, will change that dynamic mm. entirely. Um, but yeah, it's in terms of those decisions, it's it can become very difficult. Mm. But what we're very good at and um, have become very good at is knowing when the decision needs to be left there for a moment like pin that park that move mm. on do something else come back see what you think in a moment um and and that that in itself is is really really useful because yeah. sometimes you feel really passionate about something in that moment but actually you don't need to make that decision right now and you come back later and you go oh actually you know we can have a calmer conversation mm. but you're, but you're right like those those you know agreements disagreements those things happen but that's also why the ensemble is really really important mm. as well um and we're incredibly lucky that we have such a kind of bond as a three um that we're we're quite good at having the like no but i really think this but i really think this this is what i think you know <laughs> um but never trying to continue those conversations for a long time and that's something that sticks with me as well from our training is uh it was always do 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 not talk like, do not talk. If you find that you're talking for too long, and we can be guilty of it as well. Incredibly guilty. You remind, <laughs> you remind yourself that actually go away, do something else, come back later. Um, and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. so there's always times that we, we fail massively at doing that, and, yeah. and we do get ourselves in, in knots mm. just talking through the same issue, um, and then you, it's really hard to come to a decision. But, yeah, that's always the goal is to 
to be able to create a space where we can make stuff, we can disagree with the stuff we've made, we can want to change it, and then we can talk that through and come to another decision. Um, the, ideal, the ideal world, would, we would make that decision fairly quickly, but the reality is that those things take time, and, yeah. and it, especially when it, people are passionate. Like, the, the stu- again, the stuff we make, the stuff we're talking about, is passionate subject matter yeah. for us. So we all feel differently about different things, and we all feel very passionately about mm. it. So when someone comes up against something that they disagree with or that they want to change, it's normally quite a passionate reason behind yeah. that mm. so um so again the, ju- the duty of care to each other in that space as well is is really important yeah mm. so you're a couple of weeks in i don't know how long your processes are to make your pieces but say uh, what what's an average rehearsal well, we st- process we started it's it's again this is an interesting question because this is our first arts arts council funded show from start to finish okay um and we started making it in 2019 with a two-week R&D. With a two-week wow. R&D. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we had another two weeks of rehearsal um, before we were going to go into the first London run, which was meant to be three weeks. Uh, but that was March 2020, so right. that was a little we old. We got one week of lockdown, and then we stopped. Yeah. yeah. And um, and for us, who'd gone from a process where a clown show about rain probably took about a year to make that show um, in our in our spare time spare time yeah um and follow suit we did we had like three months and then another sort of year process Mm -hmm. we're still refining what that means but i know that for me definitely the original two weeks of r&d and then two weeks of rehearsal would not have been enough time realistically to make Mm. a show and then from that 2020 point where we stopped we were put on hold we continued things were bubbling away and we you know we all went away and had a had a break because the world was very scary and strange um but then we all came back and started making again and we continued making and we still are making we Mm. still are making changes there are still things that are getting cut and added to this day even though the show is published and uh, we've been doing it Mm. for not necessarily not massive things but kind of structurally things you know there's been recently there's like a like just a bit which we swapped around and it's so much better so much better. you just realize having yeah. done it like that many times you're like that's so much better i can't believe we were doing it any other way i know so uh, then you're however far into the process yeah. you're maybe halfway through or maybe mm. three three-fourths of the way through mm-hmm. um and so do you have sketches that then move around or what what are the building blocks of the wider I would piece say probably without meaning it we work in episodes. Episodes. So, follow suit had a real structure to it that we were like. That I mean, it's the most structured show. <laughs> you could like predictable. You, it's some so might predictable. Say. <laughs> but it kind of works in the sense that you're basically that with that show you were making a a game essentially, and the game is right. You've got these four office workers who are working, and then what game do they play to? make the office world more ridiculous and then the man comes in with the body and then they have to then go back to doing their office stuff but with this this more of a need to distract themselves so it's just like office game man comes in with body more intense office game man comes in with body more intense there's like these there's very simple there's other little kind of things in there um, as well but that really has a structure to it so that was kind of episodic in its way but I think um we're still it's still 
that we you kind of have sections, isn't it? Yeah, we we it is, it is vignettes almost. Yeah, of moments, and this show in itself again is in the way that Waiting for Godot is. They are talking about Waiting for Godot and then they're playing a word game and then they're talking about Waiting for Godot and then they're doing a little funny dance and then mm. they're talking about... And and what different things do they use to distract themselves or to comfort themselves or to um, entertain themselves? Mm. And we kind of followed that structure mm. a little bit with Godot as a woman because the, the concept is that we are on the phone to the Beckett estate yeah waiting for them to give us the and rights. that came quite early so in that first two weeks of R&D as I say we probably did a good few kind of days of playing but even within that we came to the end of that with half an hour of material mm. and that was basically built about around the fact that we were writing letters to the Beckett estate and getting waiting for a response and then getting a response which then in the next R&D became the hanging on the phone yeah which then becomes the sort of backbone um to it so we know that that's the skeleton structure is that we're on the phone waiting mm -hmm. so if we did absolutely nothing else we knew that that mm. would continue and also you know you then know you've got a phone box with a phone with it right what can you do with the phone box and the phone with it so that stuff that's waiting on the line and what you can do and you know how how are you how are you going to wait what are the different ways we can wait mm. what would you do and like that's absolute gold for like how you start developing those bits so mm. that came on really early we also had the music, we'd made dances, so the dances came, mm. kind of as separate bits. But then the the way that these kind of, you know, separate kind of vignettes, as you put it, I think is a great way of putting it, is, is as an answer to a question, which is, mm. why can't people who aren't men do Waiting for Godot? And essentially just interrogating that from all different angles, um, which is not only about, you know, okay, if I looked like a man, even though I'm not a man, would that be okay? Okay, how do we explore that physically? Uh, and then, you know, uh, <laughs> we have ages, we had this thing about like, <laughs> if only men can do it and they eat carrots in Waiting for Godot, how would a man eat a carrot? <laughs> and how is that different to how a woman eats a carrot? Yeah. And like, that was like a whole thing that we explored for a while. So kind of like this link to the original, the original, but then kind of playing on it again, like the literal thing of like, if you could break it down, yeah, like, like, and how ridiculous and absurd that is. Like, does a woman eat a carrot differently to a non-binary person? And does a non-binary <laughs> person eat a carrot differently to a man? And it's just, like, how ridiculous that is in yeah. concept. And then again, with this as well, it's all just different ideas that are popping up. Of course it is. Yeah. But it's that thing of with this as well. We knew that we had the structure the first time that we've ever used words in a big way. Mm. We knew that we had this kind of um, the rhythms and the repetitions and the kind of poetry of Beckett to play with. Mm. But also mm. loads we wanted to say. Because I remember you being like, we can't not say anything. We're going to have to say. And there's so much we yeah. have we want to say. And then we did go away and do bits of writing, which was the first time we'd ever done that. Yeah. Sometimes in the room, sometimes not in the room, and come back and then try those kind of bits out. Yeah, there was some really wonderful moments where we went away and, and we took uh, Waiting for Godot. Like they, I, there's bits in it where they they play, play ping pong with words and it's amazing mm. and um, and they contradict each other and, they, and they're just so silly but so beautifully written crafted bits of text so we went away and played with that and played yeah. with that kind of rhythm um and and then there was other bits like the courtroom seat so there's the latter half of the show is them in a courtroom scene taking the Beckett estate to court 
and um and we for the first time ever just went away and wrote scenes yeah which was completely new for us so mm. but it felt so necessary and that was so late on in fact i don't even remember how much courtroom stuff there really was when we got shut down due to the pandemic in march 2020 there was quite yeah it was there it was, it was there, there but, but we've developed it a lot it was hugely developed then. in that yeah. kind of time where all we could really do was write rather than be in a room together mm. so yeah that's kind of a play yeah but in a, yeah in answer to your question yeah. it is sections and quite often like a big roll of paper or like, you know, pieces of paper where the things are written and then they are moved, they are moved around, mm. um, essentially. And you try them in different orders and lots things. of puzzle pieces and yeah. kind of trying things out in different But this ways. one with the kind of the point, the really important point, I think, was where we went, right, OK, there's this, this kind of has two halves, which is kind of parody of Waiting for Godot about us waiting for Waiting for Godot then okay we've already talked about the fact that the that loads of companies have been taken to court over this isn't this ridiculous let's take them to court and that mm. you know once you get to that point you then go and that was yeah that was probably maybe midway through the process that we got yeah. to that point so where can we see Waiting for Godot? You guys are on tour, not Waiting for Godot. Where can we see... Not Waiting for Godot. Well, you probably can see that somewhere. Yes, but where can not, we see Godot as a woman? Uh, we'll be in Edinburgh Festival for the last two weeks of the Edinburgh Fringe. At the Pleasance Courtyard, which will be very fun. Yeah. Um, at 3.35. I got it right. Did I get you it did. right? 3.35 every day for the last two weeks. Um, and then we're taking it to a few more places afterwards. It's all on our website, Silent Faces. It's not yet, but we, we're, there will soon be announcements for Cambridge, <gasps> Nottingham, Halifax, Halifax, Doncaster, Chester. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Great. And sorry, last thing. Um, do you have any advice from people who are wanting to make their own work? Do it. <laughs> do it and ask questions yes ask people for help I think um we spent a lot of time going well being very impostery about it we still are a bit a lot massively imposter syndrome about everything that we do and while that gives you a good uh self-reflective self-critical thing which makes you I think strive to be better and it's very useful we also have put stumbling blocks in our own way throughout a lot of our process um, and to getting to this point. Mm. Because it, I feel like as a young theatre maker, you are always in the position where you feel like someone else has the secrets and you don't have the secrets. And, and actually, you can just ask people. People are very generous often. Some are not. Some, some are aren't rude, but just in any way. Them. Yeah. Um, and, and someone will, will give you... Yeah, we'll give you advice, even if it's just little bits that you kind of, yeah, it's those moments where you're kind of, for me, given permission to do it, that you can mm. do this. And I think for us, a huge thing, and this, it's been a, quite a few years again now, but for a long time, we didn't go for the money. We didn't go for the funding. And the Arts Council is not a perfect organisation, but you can find the money to make your work to pay yourself and pay, pay yourself. people around you and there's also so many resources everywhere now of people who want to help you to find ways of getting that money as well 
Um, and also the worst thing that anyone can do, whether it's money, whether it's advice, whether it's space, whatever it is you need, the worst thing that can happen is people say no. Mm. Yeah. Um, but they're only going to say no if you ask in the first place. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for hours <laughs> and just pick your brains. But thank you for your time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so thank you. much. Thank you for joining us for the Make It Work podcast. I've been your host, Cluanny Saunders. Please follow us on Instagram at, at Make It Work Podcast UK. Or if you have any feedback for us, please email us at makeitworkpodcastuk at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. And also please like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Join us, learn with us, and let's make it work.